Let's begin with prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing gift of the Bible, uh, that you reveal yourself to us, that we can know you. Um, we pray that you would uh, speak to us and impact our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So uh, the topic, uh, we're still within the, the larger series of uh, disciplines of grace, right? So what are uh, those practices, those disciplines that help us to grow in grace, to grow uh, as Christians? And uh, we're going through how, do you, how to read the Bible, right? And uh, we talked about how in the Bible there are various genres. Does uh, anybody remember what a genre is when it comes to uh, the Bible? Yes, Brooke, what's a genre? Different types of the Bible. Yeah, different types of literature, right? And so we saw that there's, like, for example, epistles, and then there's narratives, um, and there's all like poetry. And 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 what what? How does knowing what the genre is help you to read the Bible? Does anyone remember? How does knowing what the genre is help you to read the Bible? Yes, Brooke. You know what to expect and what you're reading. Exactly, right? So uh, I talked about, for example, in movies, right? There are movie genres. And if you know that a movie is a comedy versus a uh, drama, you expect different things when you see different scenes, right? So, for example, if you see um, a funeral scene in a comedy, what do you expect? You expect maybe a clown to come crashing through and then you laugh, right? Um, or if you have a drama and you see a funeral, what do you expect to do? you should expect to cry, right? Or be really sad. So these are kind of strategies to help you to read, okay? So today we're talking about Acts. How do you read Acts? And, um, you know, as I was preparing for this lesson, um, it was just so overwhelming. How do I cover Acts in uh, 30 minutes? Um, and so what I've decided to do is I've decided to focus on something very, very narrow. Uh, just a second. Alright, um, so Acts is, you know, I've decided to cover something very, very narrow, which is, I wanted to look at uh, the challenge of reading Acts and the question of precedent, okay? So what's the challenge? When you read Acts, you read about all these wondrous stories and all these strange stories, and the natural question people have is, um, is that a precedent for us today? I want to write that word down, precedent. Um, who knows that, what that word means? It's a kind of a big word. What is precedent? Anybody? Anybody other than Sean? <laughs> is it a legal term? Uh, it, it's, it's used in the legal word world, um, usually, but it's, it can be applied elsewhere. Jeff, do you know what a precedent is? I think in, in legal terms, it's something is a precedent means you follow up. Exactly, right? So a precedent is a model or a pattern. Is, okay. it no, is it normative? Yeah, well that's another big word. Model or pattern for us to follow. Okay? Okay? So, the question is, is Acts describing a church that we're supposed to imitate? Or is Acts describing a situation that's just so like so different and so strange that it's interesting to read about, but it doesn't really apply to us, you know? Um, and so I think there are two extremes 
positions that you can kind of look at it. One extreme is to say that we are to um, be exactly like the early church. Okay? And then the other extreme would be um, we should be nothing like the early church. Okay? And uh, so keep this paradigm or keep this question in mind as we go through the lesson. Right? So that's the question. Does anybody have a question about the question I'm asking? Right? All right. Um, so I have three passages here. I don't know if we can go through them all. But um, I have three passages to sort of highlight this, this problem for us of how do you read Acts. The first one is Acts chapter 8. Um, Acts chapter 8 is the story of how the gospel came to Samaria. Right? And so uh, the gospel comes. Philip preaches the gospel. The Samaritans believe the gospel. Right? They accept Jesus Christ as Savior. And then this is what happens in verse 14. Let's have... Um, Rachel. Can I have Rachel read verse 14? Or the whole passage there? Yeah, so what happened is uh, the Samaritans believe the gospel. Philip baptizes them, okay? But then Peter and, um, is it Peter? No, it's uh, James and John, right? Uh, no, Peter and John. Peter and John come down from Jerusalem. They lay their hands on the Samaritans, and then the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit. And from this story, from this passage, um, people have come up with this position called the second blessing. Or something called the second baptism of the Holy Spirit. Does anybody know, has anybody heard of those terms or has anybody heard of the, these concepts? Second blessing, second baptism, no? Yes. Yes? Anybody else? No? Um, so this is, very, this is one of the central teachings in Pentecostalism. And it's this idea that when you first become a believer, right, you're baptized with water and, you know, you're, you're a Christian, but you don't yet have the higher and greater blessing of having the Holy Spirit. And so that's the second blessing or the second baptism. And when you have the Holy Spirit, then you have this extraordinary ability to obey God and to live for Him and to have this extraordinary level of holiness. So the, the model here is a two-tiered view of Christianity. Here's your Christian life, you know, you're struggling with sins and so forth. And then all of a sudden you receive the second blessing, and then you go up to this higher level. And then, you know, you have this incredible passion for God and holiness for God. But you have to have the second blessing, right? And then one of the key passages for this position is this story, right? Um... And so how do we understand it? Is there such a thing as second blessing or second baptism? Um, and I think, again, that's the question of precedent, right? Should we imitate this? Should it be the case where if you're a Christian, if you become a believer, you're baptized, and then maybe a couple of months later, some bigwigs come down, lay their hands on you, and then you receive the Holy Spirit. Is there like this delay, 
right? Is that, um, is that normal or is that something we should be doing? Should we follow the early church in that way? Okay, so that's the question. Any questions about that passage? We'll return back to it, by the way, at the end. No? Okay, next passage. Acts chapter 11. Uh, I don't need to set it up, so can I have Carolyn read it? Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and was told by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the day of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. <coughs> So here in this story, you have Agabus, who is a prophet, okay? And he is able to foresee that there's going to be this famine throughout the Mediterranean world. And so he prophesies of this famine, and the church is galvanized, it springs to action, and they decide to uh, make this huge collection to help the poor who will be devastated by this famine, right? And so here's the question for us. Do we, in the modern-day church, should we have prophets like Agabus? You know, maybe like Jeff could be our prophet, and he could say, I foresee stock market crash, you know, in 2014. And so all of us prepare and we, you know, make adjustments to our lives or something, right? Is that something that we should be doing in the church today? Should we have prophets? Are there prophets today? That's the question, right? So that's the question, again, of precedent, right? The early church had prophets, do we have prophets today? All right. So that's the question. Any questions about my? Any questions about that passage? No. Okay. Um, Acts 15. Well, let, let's skip it for the sake of time. All right. So let me go to point number two. So what is the answer? And I believe the answer, right, is that we need to remember that in the early church they had somebody called apostles. Okay. What's an apostle? Does anybody know? What's the definition of an apostle? Messenger? Messenger, yes. Okay. Uh, another definition can be ambassador. Um, so an apostle is someone who Jesus personally appointed and gave them his authority and gave them his teachings and told them you now go on and speak about me and, you know, be my messenger, right? And so they're, they're his authorized messengers. So, and so the way it works is, here's Jesus. He authorizes his apostles. He appoints his apostles. And then the apostles speak to teach and govern the church. Does that make sense? Okay. Um... Let's see, where am I? Okay. Um, and, you know, I think that's really important to remember that uh, there are apostles in the book of Acts. And I kind of left this kind of blank here um, because does anybody know the full title of the, of the book of Acts? We call it Acts, but that's really shorthand for what? Does anybody know the full title of the book? The Acts of the Apostles. Yeah, the, it's called the Acts of... Apostles. Okay, so that's very critical. Okay, and the argument I'm going to make here is that apostles are utterly unique. We don't have them today. Okay, and the fact that there are apostles in the early church really changes the way we should read the the book of Acts. So, so let's look at the first passage here. This is the very introduction 
you know, often you ask, okay, how should I read a book? Just read the first, like, read the first couple of verses, read the first chapter, and that should pretty much fill you in. So let's read Acts chapter 1, all of it. Can I have Jeff read the whole thing? In the first book of Theophilus. Theophilus. Okay, wait, let's pause right there. So here's a little bit of Bible trivia. Uh, the author of Acts says in the first book. What's the first book that he's talking about? Anybody know? Bible trivia. Time to impress your pastor. Yes. Luke wrote uh, the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote Acts. And so they're supposed to be one continuous work, right? Okay, so go on. In the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day when he was taken up and after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. Okay, let's stop right there, right? So he gave commands to his apostles, right? And the way the apostles know how, what to teach and what to say is that they've received the Holy Spirit. And we've talked about this in a sermon before, right? That when you have the Holy Spirit, you have Jesus, right? So that the Holy Spirit communicates the power, the teaching, the reality of Jesus in a very special way to the apostles. And we also have that, uh, not in, a, in an exact way, but in a very similar way. Keep going. Whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, when will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. Yeah, so... I think what's really interesting in this passage is that um, it kind of shows you the way the disciples were throughout the Gospels, right? They're always asking clueless questions to show that they don't really get it, right? And Jesus says, um, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, right? So when you have the Holy Spirit, then you will be able to understand and put it all together, everything that I've been teaching you. Do you guys remember at what point do the disciples receive the Holy Spirit, the promised Spirit, so that they receive this power that Jesus is speaking of? Here's a, it's another Bible trivia question. Anybody? I see, like, Melissa mumbling. So I'm going to point in that direction. Do you remember? Yes, Pentecost, exactly, right? So Jesus says, at Pentecost, you're going to receive the Spirit, and you're going to have this authority, you're going to have this power to be my witnesses, to be my messengers, my my authoritative witnesses, right? And the word apostle means it, 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 it's, very, it's very much like a king sends an emissary, right? Because the king can't personally be there because Jesus is in heaven, right? He's reigning in heaven. And so when a king sends the emissary, you treat the emissary like you treat the king, right? Whatever the emissary says, that's the message of the king, right? Um, it's like our secretary of state. Whatever Hillary Clinton says, to the, to the president of Russia, that's Obama's official position, right? And so it works very much in a similar way. And so the apostles then are Jesus' emissaries, they're his 
messengers. Any any questions? And they and they do this through the Holy Spirit. Any questions or comments? No. Okay. All right. So let's go on to the next passage. So uh, let's flesh out what it means to be an apostle. Uh, what 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 is their authority? What is their role in the New Testament church? Uh, Matthew 16. This is a very very significant passage um, and somewhat controversial. Let's have Aikman. Can you read Matthew 16? So he says to Peter, on this rock I will build my church. We'll come back to that a little bit later. But then he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. All right. So keys. The keys of the kingdom. What do you think Jesus is talking about here? The keys. Yes. How to get there. How to get there. Yes, that's good. Right? Keep developing it. Any, anybody want to keep helping or building on that? What, what, what do you think the keys mean? It's actually a metaphor, and it's a little bit difficult for us because it's like a metaphor from the ancient world. We don't exactly have that, but we have something very, very similar. Let's imagine, right, that um, you own a business, right? And uh, you have a manager, and you hand over the keys to the manager and say, I'm going on vacation. What, do you, what does it mean when you give your manager the keys? Yeah? He can open up the building and do something Yeah, he can you know, open up the closet and take out the supplies. He has access to the safe and all the money. And he's a general manager, right? So when Jesus says, Peter, here are the keys. What is he saying? He's appointing Peter as a kind of manager or as a kind of person who is in charge, right? And I think that, you know, it's not just Peter, but Peter as a leader of the disciples, it's to all the disciples receive this power and authority. The apostles, one of the meanings of the apostles is that they have this absolutely, utterly unique role as being kind of managers in the church. They govern the church. They uh, teach the church. They rule the church in a way that no other person has, right? And does anyone know what's the major dispute about this passage? What's the major controversy? It's between Protestants and Catholics about the keys. The Pope, yes. What's the, what's the, what's the... Yeah, Peter got the keys, right? And then one day Peter died, but before he died he's like, here, Take the keys, right? And so they pass the keys down. Um, I want to see those keys. But uh, uh, the Protestants would say the keys don't pass down, right? That to be an apostle means that you personally received your commission from Jesus, right? And so 
uh, 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 they've seen the risen Christ. So Peter has that authority. The disciples, the apostles have that authority. But we would say as Protestants, no other human being after that first generation has ever received that authority. Right? And so that's uh, one of the differences we might have in terms of how do we read Acts is that Acts has these people that we just don't have. But the Roman Catholics, and there are actually a lot of other denominations that have um, this role, they call them apostles, right? You know, they, they would say that because they still have apostles, they have they, all these kind of things that happen in the book of Acts can still continue. But as, as Protestants, we would say no. Does that, does that make sense? Any, any questions? Yes, Carolyn? You know, in your conversations with your Catholic friends, yes, you you, 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 you you're up against that. Yeah. Point. And clearly, you know, you point back to the Bible, but you know, they're they're Catholic, you know, um, faith is different. Sure. So how do you like respond. interact with that or respond yeah. to that? Wow. <laughs> Why you gotta ask like huge questions? Because <laughs> <laughs> I just had a conversation. Um, I think the next passage maybe will help you with that, okay? But I would respond that apostles are an utterly unique role that are, is irrepeatable, does not reoccur. It's a once and for once and for all a generation, never to be repeated again. You know, that I would say very respectfully, Clement, uh, Pope Clement, right, as wise and as thoughtful and as scholarly as as he is, he has never received a personal commission from Jesus. He has not walked with Jesus. He has not seen the risen Christ. Um, and so he doesn't have the authority that I would say Peter has, or the apostles have. But let's go to the next passage, right? Um, Ephesians chapter 2. So with that, Danny, can you read that? Ephesians 2. So then you are no longer strangers and but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being Okay, Ephesians 2.20 I think is one of the most key passages to help you to understand apostles and to help you understand the book of Acts. Okay, Ephesians 2.20 tells us that the apostles and the prophets are a foundation, right? Now, I don't know squat about buildings, <laughs> but I do know, right, that in a, in a, when you build a building, you can't just like put the structure on dirt, right? Because what happens when you put, huh? Yes, Cooper, what happens? Yeah, it collapses, right? Because dirt's not really solid, right? So what you gotta do is you gotta dig up the dirt and then replace it with a foundation, something really solid, right? Like cement. I don't know what they use in the ancient world, but something, right? Like rocks, I guess. Yes. Stones. Stones. They Probably stones. Marble. They did have cement. They did? Okay. I bet they used cement then. <laughs> cement and stones. So, a foundation, right? Now, so let's say you're building a, a house, right? So you laid a foundation, and what's the next thing you do? Do you say, more foundation? <laughs> let's build another layer of foundation, and then another. No, you say, good, we got the foundation. Let's build the actual house, right? What is, what is Paul saying by using, evoking this metaphor of a foundation, right? And when, and when Jesus says, Peter, you're my rock, 
and upon this rock I build my church. What is he saying? He's saying that the apostles are a once and for all layer to build the church, never to be repeated again, right? Because the house can be like what? Two, three, four stories, five stories. In New York, maybe it's like 80 stories. But you don't have multiple layers of foundation. You only have one. Does that make sense? Okay. So the foundation is you have the apostles. And so to answer Carolyn's question, that would be one of my answers, which is I would say to my Catholic friend, what about Ephesians 2.20? <laughs> the apostles are the foundation. Okay, um, let's fill this out a little bit more. Let's read uh, 2 Corinthians 12 to 12. Can I have uh, Melissa read it? Oh, so let me put prophecy, because it says prophets. Okay, um, prophecy. Okay, what are, what are some of the th things that apostles have? They have all this power, they have uh, signs, wonders. And, I would, and uh, this is not really a word that you find in the Bible, but this is kind of the modern word for it. Miracles, okay? So when we read in the book of Acts, all of these miraculous events... Okay, it's not because God is just in the business of always doing miracles. <laughs> okay, it's because the apostles, as the foundation layer, had this power, and that power manifested itself in these signs and these wonders and these miracles. Does that make sense? Does, do people understand the argument I'm trying to make here? Let's keep reading. How about he, Hebrews 2? Uh, Kay, can you read that? It was declared at first by the Lord. Okay, wait, stop there. So that's a very important word, attested. Um, this is the ESV translation. So they love to use words that are kind of people don't use anymore. What is attested? This is, by the way, a vocabulary lesson today. What does attested mean? Attested. Except Burke, because he can't get all the credit all the time. What is attested? Tested. Who has a different translation? Does anybody carry an NIV translation or a or a New Living translation or a I don't know? No one. I've like brainwashed you well, <laughs> Scott. I think it means witness. Witness. Okay. Close. Very very close. What does attested mean? Uh, who has a translation that they, they can, uh, the NIV translation? Tommy? Uh, not quite there. Not quite there. Who has a faster iPhone? <laughs> Clarence? <laughs> oh, you have a different translation? Yeah. Okay. Um, hey, can you read it loud? How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? The salvation which was first announced by the Lord. Oh, stop there. So what's the word that they used? Huh? No, no, no. Confirmed, yeah. Okay. Uh, another synonym would be authenticated. Okay. So this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying, okay? Here are these apostles, right? And they're like, 
were emissaries of Jesus, were his messengers, the messengers of the Messiah. And then this is what you're to believe. And then the people are like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> you're crazy, right? And then the apostle's like, no, no, no. Let me attest the message to you. Here are signs and wonders to authenticate what I'm saying. Does that make sense? So what, are the, what is the role of the miracles in the, in the, in the book of Acts? Um, to make people believe. Yeah, to make people believe, to, to give them assurance that what is being said is truly from God, right? Because the, the apostles had all the signs and wonders. They're not just like shooting out from the hip and just saying whatever. The Holy Spirit proves what they're saying is true by these signs and wonders. Does that make sense? So that was the role of the miracles. But let's, actually, who was, I, who was reading it? Who did I interrupt? Okay. Can you keep reading it? <laughs> God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Yeah. So how was it attested? By these signs and wonders and various miracles. Okay. And so this leads me to my next point, which is miracles in the Bible or miracles in redemptive history. God doesn't just like willy-nilly use miracles, right? If you actually read through the Bible, the majority of the Bible does not have miracles. And actually, there are only three periods that are kind of punctuated in redemptive history where there are a lot of miracles. Who knows those periods? What was the first period where there was a lot, a lot of miracles? Don't say creation, because, you know, let's skip that. Okay. Where, 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 the creation was a miracle, but what, 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 where was the period of great miracles? Burke? Exodus. Yes! Exodus. It's like your dad is a pastor or something, right? <laughs> okay? Exodus, right? Moses was given these signs and wonders, right? Because God was doing something really amazing with his people. They needed to have that, the impact of that, what was happening to them, confirmed by miracles, okay? Um, I think what miracles does is it authenticates the message and it does something else. It communicates it in a powerful way so that you really can see it. You really believe it, right? Uh, what's, the, what's the next period? This one might be a little bit tricky. People might not know this. Someone impress me and tell me, what's the next period of the Bible where you see a lot of miracles? Do you see it in Abraham, the story of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac? No, right? Do you see it in the time of King David? No, right? No miracles in King David's time. When was another time? Jesus Daniel, yeah? Daniel That's true. That's true. Well, there are miracles throughout, yeah. But I'm talking about really Elijah. punctuated yeah, period. Huh? Elijah and Elijah. Yeah. The prophets Elijah and Elisha, right? Elisha, yeah. Um, why was that significant? Because this was a period when Israel was leaving God and leaving the covenant. So these prophets come. Right? And they have these incredible period of miracles. And then what's the final period where we see a lot of miracles? <coughs> Time of Jesus, good. Jesus and Jesus' emissaries. So the early church. Okay? The miracles have purpose. God doesn't have, there's not miracles aflowing throughout the Bible, right? It's for the purpose of, the miracles are for the purpose of laying the foundation. And therefore, here's the answer to the question. 
Are there miracles? Are there prophecies? Are there signs and wonders today in the in the church, in the modern day church? And the answer I would say is no. No, because it was for this period. It was to lay the foundation, it was to authenticate the message, it was to really communicate the message to people's hearts and that period. But now we don't need it. Because what do we have in place of signs and wonders and the and living apostles? What do we have? The actual church building. The actual church, yes, we are we are the actual church building. But what do we have that's equivalent to the miracles and the signs and and, and, and the living apostles telling you this is what Jesus said. He fed 5,000. He walked on water. He raised Lazarus from the dead. What do we have that's the equivalent? Yes. Yes. Right? We have the Bible. And so we can think of the Bible as the textual documentation of this foundation. Does that make sense? The apostles are all dead. But we have the apostles' teachings in a book. So we, we have that. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, okay. Okay, so what's, so what's then the purpose of the miracles? Uh, third page, um, we can go over this very quickly. Can I have uh, Nan read Acts 2? And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. And all again upon every soul many wonders and signs yeah, all came upon every soul. I love that word, all. I think uh, that was one of the roles of the miracles, right? Is that people would be like, wow, you know, ah, oh, God is doing something, you know? Um, and so signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And they're being done through the apostles, which means that was it. That was the only layer. Um, Acts chapter 4, can I have Eric read Acts 4? And with great power, the apostles were given their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Yeah, great power. That was the purpose, was to communicate power, you know, to the first generation of believers. Okay. Um, all right, let's see what should I do. I'm debating if we should do the case study. Well, are there any questions first? Yes, Eric. Now, I think sort of the natural question that tends to come up is, you tell me God doesn't heal today? You think if God doesn't do these sort of very wondrous, you know, that boggle doctor's minds any day? Sure. Um, so, just a little brief thing on the difference between extraordinary providence sure. versus a sign of a particular office. Yeah, um, you know, I think honest Christians can come up with different answers to that. Um, I'm somewhat agnostic on the on can God do miraculous healings. Um, certainly, you know, if someone is healed through medicine. I think that's God healing that person through the doctor. Um, can there be healings that defy medicine that is from God? Um, I don't know. Maybe you know. Um, I'm. I think different Christians have different opinions on it. But I would say that the kind of miracles that you saw in the Book of Acts. Wait. Let me let me finish, and then I'll let you guys. I would say the kind of miracles that you see in the book of Acts where, for example, someone is dead <laughs> and you can poke them and they're dead and then they rise to life. The kind of miracles are where someone is lame for 40 years and then, you know, the apostles pick them up and they can start walking. Someone has a withered hand and then 
they're healed. These kinds of, I would say, spectacular miracles is for the, the period of Acts, the period of the early church. Um, but am I ready to shut the door completely on all miracles in the sense of like healing miracles? So am I a, a, an absolute cessationist, I guess, if we want to resort to theological lingo? Uh, I would say no. I'm like a 98% cessationist. Yeah, but yeah, did R. you have a response R. to that? R.C. Sproul, his little book, uh, The Invisible Hand, yeah. uh, sort of introduction to the providence of God, and Paul Allen's got a little good book on providence. His miracles are testimony to an office mm. that that signs significance. But they, they make this difference between what we call extraordinary providence, in which someone gets healed, mm. but it's not testifying to an office. I see, yeah. That makes and, a lot of sense. Yeah, so, I, I would and so that. there are a lot of times in which this person's going to die, there's no hope for him, and yet inexplicable reasons through the prayer of the saints, he's, they, they don't die and they're healed. And yet it's not testifying to an office. Yeah, I agree. And so they would call that extraordinary providence. So I, I, I had the opportunity to ask Dr. Sproul, because he was teaching when I was there, and I said, Dr. Sproul, um, if miracles don't happen today, how are the Steelers ever going to win the Super <laughs> And he said, extraordinary providence, son. Extraordinary providence. I see. Yes, yeah, so I, I, I think we're, we see the same yeah. in the same way. Yeah, I think that's, that's right. So there are no miracles today that testify to an office, yeah. So if someone says, if there's a miracle healer, and someone says, because of these miracles, I'm an apostle, I would have a great deal of skepticism about that person, you know. I, I'm not ready to, you know, kill that person with, you know, the way we might do in the Old Testament with prophets, but I would say, <laughs> I don't know, it seems shady. Maybe read Ephesians 20, 2.20 a little bit more, <laughs> yeah. There was kind of a fuzzy middle ground in animistic cultures. Missionaries report a lot of more visions, prophecies, and healings just because they're desiring them. Yeah, that's a great point. So one of the major arguments, which I actually don't really accept, but one of the major arguments is that, okay, so in the Mediterranean world, they needed this foundation, right? Every time the gospel goes to a brand new region, they need another foundation. So they need miracles, they need signs to sort of establish the gospel. And you see that happening in Asia, you see it happening in Africa. And that's why you hear about these crazy, amazing miracles, right? That missionaries are doing. Um, that's an interesting theory about that. Like, I guess the church, there's different foundations for each region or something. I don't know, that, I, I, I'm skeptical. <laughs> but there is that argument, yeah. Would you say that the casting out of demons yeah, I would, I would put demon casting out as one of the signs of the foundation period. What about you? Well, I mean, he, we've been in... Demon casting out sessions? In a, no, but if you've ever been in... I, I wasn't there, he was, but if you've ever been in an animistic culture where buildings, people, homes are actually actually dedicated to demons... Or I get, yeah, I won't, I won't, I won't. <laughs> I disagree. <laughs> okay, okay. I think that's, that's you know, I, I respect that understanding. Or 75% Cool. <laughs> um, by the way, so the, the word I've been using is cessationism. So this is opposed to uh, the charismatic position. 
carers. But, but even if you thought that... that well, well, let, me, let me quickly define you. Charismatic means that the extraordinary gifts and prophecies and healings and miracles continue on. So the book of Acts is exactly the way we should be. Cessationism would be, that's a foundation layer. Um, and so let me say this, okay? Let me, let me wrap this up. I believe we should be right here, right? Um, the book of Acts is a precedent. It absolutely is, okay? But when we read stories, we need to read it carefully so that when we see apostles doing things, we need to remember, these are apostles, okay? And so they're doing something extraordinary that we cannot repeat, but there's a principle behind what they're doing, right? So the passage I have here, and I'll just summarize it for you guys, is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira lie. They, they uh, donate money and they, they lie about it. And then Peter says, you're lying. <laughs> you're lying to the Holy Spirit, and now you're going to die, okay? Can we do that today, you know, Jeff? I know you're lying, so tomorrow you're going to die, you know? No. You know, I don't know. We can't read into people's hearts, but I believe there's a principle, which is that there should be holiness. There should be um, purity. There should be truth in the, in the church, right? And there, and, and there is something called church discipline, right? Um, and then just to go back, wrap back around, for example, Acts chapter 11, right? We don't have Agabuses today, but what's the principle? We see a church so compassionate to those who are poor and they're moved to compassion because of this famine. You know, now we have instantaneous news, right? So anytime we see our brothers and sisters in trouble, we can move to help them, right? And so let me just finish with that. I'm sorry, you know, if it felt rushed. Um, let's pray. <laughs> let's pray in closing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the book of Acts. We pray that uh, when we read it, our hearts would be stirred. We, we would we would desire with all of our being to to be that kind of joyful, dynamic, uh, explosive, culture-crossing uh, church that's just so engaged with the poor, engaged with uh, the marginalized, and we're just so bold that we'd even risk our lives uh, to proclaim your, your word. Uh, give us that kind of heart, Lord. Uh, make us so desirous to be the church you want us to be um, that glorifies you. Uh, Lord, we pray thanking you for the gift of, of the early church and their stories. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.